Every other week opposite the main Hey YA podcast, we'll bring you a short form podcast of YA talk across a wide range of topics. I'm Tears of Price, and for today's episode, I wanted to talk about an issue that is kind of a follow up to last week's full episode that I did with Erica on indie presses that are putting out really excellent YA. So if you haven't gone and listened to that one already, I really recommend that you do so. You don't necessarily need to listen to it, you know, before you listen to this episode, but I think it's it's a really great episode. We had a lot of fun with it. We cover some really great YA books that are being put out by independent publishers and presses. So not self-publishing, but small presses. And why we think it's really important that you're aware of these books and support them. And, you know, spoiler alert, you might actually already be supporting some of these presses and reading some of these books and just like not realizing it. Because some of these indie presses have some, you know, big bestsellers and some big names behind them. But before I really dive into the meat of our episode, let's hear from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by World Editions, publisher of Salamalik by Khaled Alasmail. In this unflinching story about Arab masculinity and homoeroticism, Farat, a Syrian in his early 20s, visits Sibki Park in Damascus, one of the city's most popular cruising areas. There he learns about the Hammam's secret meeting places for gay men located throughout the old city. So inside these public baths, the air is thick with the scent of bay laurel soap and naked men hide in the steam. Ferd faces sometimes violent disapproval from all levels of society, regime, religion, the man in the street, you name it. And yet he manages to find the love he's been seeking just before his world collapses and he's forced to flee. Find out more about Salamlik by Khaled Alasmael, translated from the Arabic by Larry Price at IndiePubs.com slash products slash Salamlik. That's S-E-L-A-M-L-I-K. And thanks again to World Editions, publisher of Salamlik by Khaled Alasmael for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Random House, publishers of Wild Ground by Emily Usher. A story of first love that will break your heart. Wild Ground is a bittersweet novel that follows two teenagers whose all-consuming relationship is tested by the forces of class, prejudice, and addiction in a small English town. From the beginning, it has always been Neef and her beautiful, troubled mother, Chrissy. When they move to a small town to follow Chrissy's older boyfriend, it's a chance to start over. And on the first day in their new home, she meets Danny and the two form a friendship that gives way to the slow burn of romance as they grow up desperate to escape the confines of their world and the forces that hold their families hostage, like substance abuse, poverty, and racism. Now, this is perfect for fans of things like normal people, euphoria, and sex education. It centers working class women in small town England. It's steeped in the dialect and lyricism of Northern England. So make sure to check out Wild Ground by Emily Usher. And thanks again to Random House, publishers of Wild Ground by Emily Usher for sponsoring this episode. All right. So yeah, last week we had a lot of fun researching our indie press episode. We, you know, realized that there's a lot more really great independent presses that are putting out amazing YA than I think either of us had like fully realized. Like once we started making the list, we're like, wow, this is a lot bigger list um, than we were expecting. And we also talked a bit about how supporting indie presses is really good for like the overall health of publishing. And the fact that like independent presses are doing some amazing work and they're taking on 
books and taking chances on books that honestly might not find a home at like the larger big five publishers. Um, And, you know, these indie presses are putting a lot of focus in promoting and really supporting these books that are like a lot of them are being published by marginalized writers. And, you know, frankly, a lot of those books might not get that sort of same attention at a larger big five publisher. So that's kind of like all of the reasons why we think indie presses are great. But then like the opposite end of that is that like it's 2023 and like it's 2023. Book banners are out in full force. So indie presses are really feeling the brunt of that, I think, even more so than the big five publishers. I think there's this really common idea, and it it is kind of a misconception, although not entirely, that if a book is banned, then, oh, well, that'll just make people even more curious about it. And, you know, kids will want to read it even more, which is all true. But then, like, also more people will buy it. And, like, it's really gotten to the point where a lot of jokes are being made about how, like, oh, another banned book. Like, oh, the author's going to enjoy all their extra money because everyone's going out and buying their book. But, like, here's the thing. Book banning only results in an increase in sales if people know it's happening and if they're, like, already sort of motivated or, like, the media is motivating them to buy it on a large scale. Um, So, like, this is just one example. But, like, when the graphic memoir Mouse by Art Spiegelman was banned in Tennessee last year or the year before, I think it was last year, though, it caused, like, this huge public outcry because of, like, the timing of, like, the banning announcement and it resulted in the book just like literally flying off the shelves. And I think it took reprints like weeks to catch up with that demand. So like that is an example of, yeah, banning a book does, you know, manufacture this this demand for it and, and people buy it. And that makes a lot of money for the author and for the publisher. But if a book is just being quietly pulled from library shelves in a small town and nobody knows that it's happening, then people aren't going to go run out and buy, you know, like five copies of the book. And then you like take that situation and you multiply that by like a hundred or a thousand or even 10,000, because that's exactly what's happening is like many books around all over the country are just quietly being pulled from shelves and then like there's no sales there you know so I actually found this really great article um, from the Atlantic and I'm dropping it in the show notes and it actually talks about you know book banning doesn't always equate to massive sales without a media blitz and right now I think we are so overwhelmed by how many books are being challenged and it's just become so commonplace like I know that I have a hard time keeping track of all the books that are being banned so like you know that's actually eating into people's sales and it's eating into like authors profits and publishers profits and it's not you know one of those things where we can kind of go oh banning is bad but hey at least I'm making money off of it because it's not it's not happening Um, Which kind of gets into soft censorship, and that's kind of what I wanted to talk about today. Um, So soft censorship happens, you know, when there is no, you know, media blitz about what's going on. It's, It's what happens when, you know, books are quietly removed from the shelves because librarians and educators are afraid that the books will be challenged or like they know that if they if they buy this book, 
in this current climate, somebody is going to see it and they're going to protest and it's going to cause a problem. And so rather than, you know, going through with buying the book and facing that problem head on, they just decide not to buy the book at all. And this, I mean, I've seen this in action. I've been complicit in it. I'm going to even admit when I was working as a librarian in Iowa, a colleague at the school library. So I was a public librarian, but a colleague at the school library asked me for a list of award-winning YA books that I'd recommend that she purchased for her high school library. She wanted to beef up that collection. I gave her a list. But then we had like this moment where I was like, actually, you shouldn't buy some of these books on this list because I know your budget is limited and you want books in the hands of teens, but some of these books have sex in them. And at that point, we knew that the Iowa legislature was going to pass Senate File 496, which is a really insidious ban on all materials containing sex in K through 12 schools. And, you know, it, I just knew that, like, if, if I tell you to go buy these books, you're going to have to probably not even, like, you're not even going to get a chance to put them out on the shelves before next year because they're probably going to be banned. And I hated that that was a conversation that we had to have. I hated that, like, I was saying, don't buy these award-winning, well-reviewed, age-appropriate YA books because of legislature that's coming down. But that is soft censorship. And that's what's happening right now all over the country. So, and the thing about soft censorship, it's it's so insidious because it is so hard to track. And sometimes you're even like, is this really even happening? Because I've even wondered myself, like, are the sales for my my newest book just low because inflation is high and the economy sucks and you know it's a third book in a series and it seems like you know everybody I know is just like their money is tight or are the sales low because this is like my first book with a queer character I don't know I will never know but these are questions that I can guarantee you that publishers and authors are facing right now So to bring this kind of back around to last week's episode, one thing that we do know for sure is that the publisher Levine Curido is definitely feeling the pinch of soft censorship. So while researching for our last episode, I stumbled upon their 100K book challenge, which they launched earlier this spring. And the essence of this book challenge is that they are feeling like the pinch of loss of book sales, loss of revenue. They know that they publish majority like marginalized BIPOC, queer, you know, children's and YA books. And those books just aren't selling as well as they used to. So they launched this challenge to try to raise awareness for, you know, their books and what they're trying to do and how they're trying to fight censorship. And they wanted to try and sell 100,000 books over the summer. So technically, this challenge did wrap up on September 1st. And I'm just really sorry I didn't see it earlier. I don't I don't know if it just got buried in my news feeds, if the algorithm wasn't working for me, if I wasn't paying attention. I've had a really busy summer, but like, I really do hope that others paid attention and that, you know, this campaign didn't just kind of go fall into the wayside. So on just a little note on the campaign page, it says, they say, Levine Querido says, extremists have chosen to target books with LGBTQ content and books that center Black, Latina, AAPI, and Indigenous stories and perspectives. These are the exact books and voices we publish. In fact, 85% of LQ's list is from queer and or BIPOC authors and illustrators, and these extremists want to pull companies like LQ out of business. Um, So obviously, we don't want that to happen. Their books are 
award winners. They receive so many starred reviews. They have truly filled a real and necessary gap in Kidlet and YA, especially when it comes to like indigenous voices. I mean, they've published like the Newberry and Prince winners of the last couple of years. And while that might not be like a big deal for a big five publisher to say, it is a big deal for a small company of, you know, fewer than 10 employees. So additionally, authors and publishing professionals who call themselves the friends of Levine Cuirdo recently did a fundraising auction to help give them an influx of cash. They raised over $100,000, by the way. That wrapped up a few days ago. But on the auction site, it said that LQ's backbone for their sales is their institutional sales, so like the school and library markets. And those have been down more than 30% this year. So I, and I think it's totally safe to say that a fair, that big dip is, is because of soft censorship. So, you know, this technically their 100,000 books challenge, it wrapped up September 1st, but I think the spirit of the challenge is still alive. And I think that this is just a really great reminder that we need to continue to support indie presses and, you know, diverse books. So if you're able to, you know, they have a special bookshop page. I linked it in the show notes. If you're not able to buy, that is okay, because I know that times are tough. We can't all afford it. Um, But I do recommend going to your library and either checking out one of their books. You can see a listing of a lot of their books on their bookshop page and on their website. Um, Or like ask your librarian to order. I mean, I know times are tough right now, but like literally this is what libraries are for. Like they are to buy and get you books, especially ones that you request. So two LQ books that I particularly recommend or are excited about. I loved When the Angels Left the Old Country by Sasha Lamb. Fantastic sort of historical fantasy. So, so good. I'm also really looking forward to ordering the graphic novel Brooms. It comes out next month and it is kind of, it looks kind of like, you know, historical, but supernatural. It's queer. It just looks really amazing. So I also linked to that in the show notes as well. It's a graphic novel. I do want to add just kind of on a final note that the way we fight soft censorship is to really show up for our schools and libraries and communicate to our communities and to the people in charge of our schools and libraries that we want diverse books on the shelves. And it, this goes beyond, you know, the issue, the circumstances of like living queerdo, but it includes all publishers. Like we need to make sure that we are showing that there is a demand for these stories. And the way we do that, unfortunately, because we live in a capitalistic society is by spending money on them. So if you personally can't spend money on them, we got to tell our school boards and our library boards that there is value in spending money on diverse materials. Also, don't wait for a book to be challenged in your community before you show up. Like soft censorship is probably happening where you live and you just don't know about it because I'll be real, the librarians and educators in your lives are exhausted. And some of them are really scared for their jobs and for the future. So on a final sort of personal anecdote, I had mentioned at the top of the episode that I, I was a public librarian in Iowa. Up until recently, I was the library director of a small rural library. We did have our fair share of censorship issues, and it did get to the point where, you know, every month when I was submitting book orders, I was really angsting over certain purchases. And, you know, should I really buy this when it might incense certain people in the community? You know, 
know, I had to really remind myself every month, like, this was valuable, this was important. And it actually got to the point where, you know, Pride Month was coming up and I had kind of mentally just decided that I I didn't want to make a big display. And that's a big deal for me because I love Pride, but I was just so downtrodden. I was so scared. I just didn't want to deal with it. And I actually, one of my staff members came to me and was like, I really think we need to do this. Like, can I, can I take it on? And I was like, you know what? Yes, I will support you. Thank you for reminding me why this is important. And we, you know, we did one. And I was so happy that we did because throughout the month, I, you know, didn't have a lot of people come up to me and thank me for the display, but I had like two people say something to me and I saw people check out those books. And that made a big impact on me personally. And it wasn't about the praise. It's not that I need to be thanked for everything, you know, I do in a community or I need to be thanked for doing my job. But I think that in a time where like, you know, I was personally being targeted and I know a lot of librarians are, this job is very hard. Hearing from the community and seeing that a display of diverse books is actually getting like looked at and picked up and checked out, like it really gave me a lot like uh, that oomph I needed to keep going and help me keep my chin up knowing that, you know, look, there's proof that I am serving the community. So if you can't support banned books financially, (laughs) please be that person in your local library or your school. Show up to those libraries and give the librarians the encouragement they need. Tell them that, you know, you've got their backs, check out their books and just support them in that way. All right. So that is really all I have for you today. Thank you so much to today's sponsor for making the show possible. And thank you for listening. You can follow me on Instagram. I hang out at, at Tears of Price. And uh, thank you so much also to our audio um, editor, Jen Zink, who makes this episode sound great. We appreciate you. And Erica and I will be back again next week for the main podcast. But until then, happy reading. <laughs>